is a special week in the life of the church, uh, of any church uh, that takes the Bible seriously, and, uh, and that's because it is the 47th, um, well, I don't, don't want to use the word anniversary, but it's the 47th year since abortion was legalized in the country. And uh, it's not something you celebrate. Uh, it's not something that, is, um, that we can be proud of in our culture. What part of the language of that time when abortion, and still since, has been, uh, one of the slogans was, every child a wanted child. I don't know how you wouldn't want a child. Uh, it seems to be if you don't want a, a, a child that God has given you, that there's a flaw in us and that we would recognize that. But that was part of the argument. 1973, when Roe v. Wade became public, the idea was that it would, it would end, for some people thought this, it would end or begin to diminish child abuse. Well, in 1973, child abuse, known child abuse cases in the country were 167,000 which is a horrific number to begin with. Ten years later, actually not, not ten years later, nine years later, that number had risen to just under a million. It went from 167 to 930. Known cases of child abuse. In other words, it, it, was, it went in exactly the opposite direction. And that should have been expected in my mind. Because if you devalue life on, at the beginning, then you're going to devalue life all through life. And that's part of what happened. But the Bible teaches us differently, as this video just displayed. God's Word talks about the specialness of each of us and our creation and what God has done and wants to do in us and the gifts that He has given us and the way that we should use those gifts and the way that all people no matter their size or texture or color, uh, no matter their age, all people, no matter what their cultural background, ethnic background, national background, no matter what their physical capabilities or incapabilities are, all bear the imagio dei, the, the image of God. And all are gifts to the world. And so... We don't celebrate, uh, but we do commemorate. Uh, we do, I hope, that we lament. And oftentimes there is not a, a, a much, much given in the modern church to lamentation, to mourning um, what is. We're, we're Americans, and we like to be happy. And we like to have things convenient and comfortable and secure. And uh, frankly, we don't oftentimes, as Americans, like to think very deeply. We want, uh, it's kind of, are we having a party yet? Are we having a good time yet? And the idea of mourning, and that mourning is appropriate and right and good and righteous and healthy, is oftentimes alien from uh, our culture. So I want to look at a text that is probably the most uh, looked at text in all of Scripture when it comes to 
uh, this particular day. Uh, it's uh, Psalm 139, which has, by the way, some very troubling verses in it um, for the modern reader. We're going to read uh, the whole psalm, but I want you to stand for the reading of the first five uh, verses of Psalm 139. There they are. <laughs> to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God's word for us. You may be seated. This is a psalm that starts out with all of this. This language of meditation, the psalmist meditating on David, meditating on the greatness of what God has done. He's thinking about his life. He's thinking about his time. He's thinking about his body, and he's thinking about the knowledge of God and what God knows of us. And, and through this first section, he talks about God's omniscience. God knows completely everything that uh, he needs to know. He he he. he he, has, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. There's nowhere we can go away from his presence. He says in, in, verse, in verse 4, uh, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Now think about that. Be, before, I, I'm about to say a word. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what my next word is going to be, but God knows it already. He knows that not just for me, but for you and the other seven and a half billion people on the planet. His knowledge of us is immense, deep, and it is complete. It's thorough. So the psalmist goes on. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And then he says, such knowledge, it's, it's too wonderful for me. It's high. I, 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 can't, I can't attain it. He's saying, I, I, can't, I can't get my, my head around it. I'm burning out synapses th in my brain thinking about it. Think about it too long, maybe you get a headache. He, he knows everything. This is one of the mind-boggling things about prayer. God knows what I'm going to say before I do. He knows what he's going to give. He knows when he's going to give it. He knows uh, uh, why he is going to give it or not give it and the timing of it. He knows all of those things. He knows the very words that I'm going to speak. So why speak them? I don't understand. I'm burning out synapses on it, but I understand this. God brokers what he does in the world by believers praying. And he calls us to pray. And so I don't have to understand uh, how that all works. I just have to know that a God this great calls me to talk to him. 
even though he knows the words I'm going to use. And that when I obey him, there is health that comes to me, to us, when we're doing what our creator told us to do, when we're living out what he commands us to do. He goes on, verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If If I go all the way to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Verse 9, he says, if I take the wings of the morning, it's, a, it's a, an image that means you know, you're, you're flying away to, to, to the west, to, to, to as far as you can look. You go there. And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It's a vision of being in the hands of God and knowing that you're secure. I'm reading a book right now. It's a novel from 1959 by an author I've never heard of before. And it's a story of a young boy who loses his mother and father uh, in back-to-back weeks to influenza. And now he's being raised by an aunt. But the night that his mother dies, there was an Uncle Ben who picked him up and carried him away to his aunt's house. And the rest of his life, Ben becomes his God figure because he's fearful of everything except when he's in the arms of Ben. And what the psalmist is saying to us is that we are always held in the arms of God. No matter what's going on around, we are held by God. And he's meditating on the greatness of God. And he, and he acknowledges, Lord, such knowledge, it's too wonderful, it's too awesome. I can't get my head around it, I can't comprehend it. Next verse. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Meditating on the greatness of God. Who is God? Anselm put it this way. uh, Catholic Christian theologian put it this way. In, uh, it's, it's known as the ontological argument for the existence of God. He put it this way. He could sum it up this way. God is a being a greater than which cannot be imagined. And then he would go on and say that because I can imagine a being who, it, who doesn't exist with all of the attributes of God, but God must, is a being a greater than which I cannot be imagined, that therefore God must exist because I can imagine that he does. It's, it's an argument that sounds circular, but when you go in a philosophy department, the philosophers will say, we haven't figured out, we think it's a, a bad argument, but we haven't figured out why. God is great. He is awesome. And we don't think about that enough. And here's where the, where the whole psalm pivots and why it's so appropriate for this day. 
the next verse begins with the word for. It's going to talk about the ground of such wonderful knowledge and thinking about God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You, he's talking about David's talking about God knowing him in his mother's womb and being knitted there together by God. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This is what God did. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you every day I wake up and every day no matter what happened the day before you're still with me he's meditating on the greatness of God then the next verses 19 20 and 21 are really really hard to understand and really hard to interpret most people when they read their Bibles they want these these verses taken out of their Bibles and thrown away So we have to understand them in their context. But here's what they say. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them. With a complete hatred, I count them my enemies. And then we get back to verses that are a little bit more comfortable. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way, verse 24, and lead me in the everlasting way. I'm going to come back to those difficult verses, but I want to move on first to my, the outline of what I want to share with you this morning. He is a God too wonderful not to talk about. Amen? And when you begin to meditate on His greatness, when you begin to see His greatness in the Scripture, when you begin to understand what God has revealed about Himself, you want to talk about Him. You want to tell others about Him. You want to live in such a way that others will begin to question and wonder about the God 
that you follow. Because the reality is that God is always with us. That's, that's our, whether you feel that, whether you think that, whether you experience that viscerally in your spirits, experience is immaterial. He is always there. You ever been in a cave when they, uh, you know, down deep below the earth and they say, we want to show you how dark it is here and they turn the lights out. Ever, anybody ever done that? And you would think, you're alone because you can see nothing. But you're not alone, of course. The person you went down there with and the group that you're down there with, they're, they're just this far away. They're right there. But you're unaware of them. He is there. The reality is that he's always with us, but our experience is often this. We easily and often forget reality. Very easily and very often. And that's why we need the word of God to remind us of who God is and who he is to us, that he is always, always with us. You've never been anywhere where you were completely alone. He's always there. And that's why we need these reminders. And all of our peace, when we forget, when we easily and often forget the reality that God is with us, that's when our peace disappears. Flies away. It's not the reality. He's still there. But when we forget that he's still there, that we're held in his arms, our peace, our experience of his peace and his presence just disappears. Verse 7 and 12, he has always been, 7 through 12, he's always been with us. Verse 13 through 16, he, he, he designed you, he planned you, he planned your potential, he numbered your days before, um, before there was yet one of them. You know, verse 7, he knows who you, where, where you go. Verse 13, he knows what you are. Verse 17, he knows what you think. Verse 18, he knows what you love. Uh, he, uh, he, he knows what you will be. All of this is contained in this psalm. He just, the, the, but the reality is we often and easily forget it. And part of it is, as, as Americans, and first as human beings, and then as Americans, there's some, there's some things because of our creatureliness that cause us to forget these things. There's some things that because of our culture that we have been swimming in all our lives that we've, we've been pickled by our culture. You know, I've, I've used that illustration before, that a, a cucumber has no idea that the juices that you are surrounding it with are turning it into a pickle. It has no idea. It's oblivious to it. And just like that, we have been swimming in a North American affluent Amer uh, you know, culture that uh, has been pickling us into its juices. And what we need is to pickle ourselves in these juices. Because he's always with us. He's never left us. And he knows us intimately, more intimately than we know ourselves. So here's the second thing, that I, observation from this text. Reality is that there's no place that we can flee away from his presence. If he's always with us, we can't get away from his presence. But here's, here's, here's our experience. Our experience is that we often live as if God has turned his back. 
flash bulletin. God never turns his back. He's always aware. He always knows. He's with us at all times. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, he's trying to think of things as far away and, uh, as, as he can. If I go to heaven or if I go to Sheol, it doesn't matter. You're there. We, we often, though, live as if God has turned our back. That's one of the ways that we get in trouble. We think God's not looking. But he is. Men and women, this is never the case. God is, oh, he's always with us. He's never turned his back. His back is never turned. And running away from him is absolutely fruitless. And we need to get this into our brains, into our spirits, into our psyche, into the way that we live our lives. That when we run away from him, when we try to run away from him, which we cannot do because he's completely aware at all times, but when we try to run away from him, we are running away from our greatest joy. We're running away from, from our greatest flourishing in life. We're running away from our best potential in life when we run, run away from God. And it's fruitless. Because wherever we go, there he is. A third reality. Reality is that God knows how much time we have. Right? But our experience is we often live as if we have all the time in the world. It's not true. When you were born, God knew your death date. You don't know that. I don't know that. None of us know that, but he does. So we, we need to live today uh, as if it's the only day that we have, because indeed, now is the only thing that we know we have. Right now. So right, na right now, the, the, the bad attitude or the bad perspective that you have on X or Y or Z or person A or B or C or whatever it is, right now is the time to deal with it. Right now, in the middle of the service. See, we need to, take the, uh, need to make the most of our time because now is all we have. And our trouble is we, we don't think about these things. We are, I'll give you an illustration in a minute. Here's the fourth thing. Reality is God's thoughts toward us are too stunning and amazing to comprehend, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to and meditate on them and comprehend. Because as we expand our minds and our spirits by meditating on who and, and how great God is, God gives us greater capacities. I saw a beer commercial one time on television. A guy, he's, he's thinking... He has a light beer in his hand. He says, if a light beer doesn't taste like a light beer, is it still a light beer? And then, and then as he's thinking, he says, hey, I'm deep. <laughs> yeah, that's the level of deep thinking in America. It's crazy. It's crazy. 
see, experience is, in our lives, is, is this. We rarely meditate on the wonder of God's thoughts about us. We rarely do that. I mean, we, we think about it for a, you know, a little bit of time when the pastor is giving a message like this, and we, we start thinking about it, but we don't, we don't take time to think about it throughout the day, throughout the week, you know, in our homes. We don't. And we should. Because it will change our lives. It will change our perspective. It will give us greater motivation to do the things that are hard in the culture. Like standing up against abortion. I saw, a, a, you know, a, I think it was on, a, what's the show that you watch in the morning? It's to, Today Show? Today? And they, they do this, uh, the highs and the lows of the week, and uh, one of them was they showed a picture of a child <clears throat> um, just going, you know, from about 20 years ago. He's about five years old child, and, and I, as I recall it. And, he's, and he's, he's really excited about some fireworks that are going on. Really, really excited. And then they showed a child today, uh, a five-year-old child. And there is this incredible, I mean, the, out the balcony behind him, there is this incredible fire, you know, you know, fireworks that are going up. They're just, it's like the, the grand finale, and it's just, and it's really close. Un- unbelievably loud, unbelievably bright and colorful. But the child's back is to the fireworks because he's looking at an iPod and he's working on a game. God gives us this, this, this firework display of his glory and his power and his omniscience and his presence and, and his knowledge of us. And, and, and David says, it's, it's just too wonderful for me. I can't, I can't even get my head around it. Now, if I were to count them, I can't even number them. But, but Lord, there they are. And, and it's just so wonderful. He wants us to meditate. He wants us to know who he is. But our experience is that we rarely meditate on the wonder of God's thoughts. To our, not just, I'm not trying to shame us. I'm trying to invite us into greater glories and greater capacities and greater wonder so that our lives would be transformed. Fifth, God knows the value of every human life, but the reality is Abortion is a denial of everything I said this morning. Abortion is, is behind, before abortion, is God saying, because he is the opener and the closer of wombs. That's what the Bible says. He opens one, he closes another. He closes one, he opens another. He is the opener and the closer of wombs, which means that every child that is conceived, God opened a womb. And abortion is people saying, no thank you. I don't want it. I don't want you, God. I'm still struggling with verses 19 
through 21. There's a couple of different scholarly approaches to how are we to interpret those verses. I love using the Psalms, as Jesus did, to frame my prayers. This is, you want to know what was Jesus, how did Jesus pray? This is how Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed the Psalms. How do we know that? On the cross, he quotes the Psalms. And many of the Psalms are, are best understood as Psalms that are written by David or Asaph or the sons of Korah or Moses or uh, Ezra the Ethrite or, or uh, uh, somebody else. They're written by a human author, but God is speaking through them, and they're best understood as God's words, as Christ's words. And really, there's a number of places where it's very hard and uncomfortable to pray certain portions of the Psalms. For instance, um, God has dealt with me according to my righteousness. Uh Uh-oh. Any righteous people here? I mean, the only person that can really pray that prayer absolutely is Jesus. He's because he's the only one who's righteous. But what are we to do with this? this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them who hate you, O Lord? I think one thing that all the scholars say is that this, we should understand that what is happening in David's heart there is a fiery, as he meditates on the greatness of God, is this fiery zeal that gets uh, excited for the holiness of God and, and some way to express that I want to distance myself from people and, uh, that do not follow the God that I'm worshiping. I, 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 want to, I want to get away from them. I don't want them around me. I, 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 that I, want, I want to worship. I want to be associated with this holy, righteous, omnipresent, all-knowledgeable God. I want to be associated with him and nothing else. I think that's part of an explanation. It's still hard to pray. But I've had this experience in praying, and maybe this, is, this will help. You probably have too. You're, you're reading the Bible, and you move to prayer, and as you move to prayer, you, you begin to be lifted away. You begin to be, as, you, as you're praying, you're seeking God, and you're, you're seeking his face and you're so excited about who he is and then something comes into your mind about what it's really like out there <laughs> in the world and anger begins to flare up. Has that ever happened to anybody? Or am I the only one who has, it's, it's angry. And, and sometimes y- your own anger, you... you you forget that you're, you're, you've been in the presence of God, you're in the presence of God, He's never, you're never out of the presence of God, and you begin to give voice to these, these kinds of things uh, in your spirit. And then you hear yourself praying those things or saying those things, and you feel guilty. Has that ever happened to anybody else? 
I, I think that might be what's happening here. I'm not sure. I suggest this to you. You study it some more. You pray about it. But I wonder if David isn't so excited about who God is, and as he thinks about that, then, he, then other things intrude, and he thinks about his enemies, and he thinks about what's going on in the world, and he gets angry. He said, Lord, I, I don't want anything to do with anything that is against you. I only want you. I just, and, I'm just, I, I, and he gets angry, and that flares up, and then he sees himself. in his own words. And that's why he comes back to, oh God, search me. Lord, I'm no better than them. Search me, God. Know my heart. Try my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think that's what's going on. I, I, I think he's, he, he, he sees himself in his own words as, he, as he, his own anger flares up a bit against people who aren't following God. And he just says, Lord, I, I'm just like them. So search me, clean me, cleanse me, make me more than I was before I started meditating on who you are. I think that might be what's going on. There's a couple of commentaries that seem to suggest something like that. But we are fearfully and wonderfully made and our church culture is rejecting that over and over and over. Some years ago, um, put together a, a script for a Lord's Supper and a Sunday for a Lord's Supper and a Sunday for Sanctity of Life. And we're going to show a little bit of a video that we put together. And then I'm going to do live what at one point we did um, for this video. So if you would show the first third of this video. Every war is a tragedy. Every war is a subtraction from humanity. Some wars may be necessary. Some wars may be noble in intention. Some wars may be ignoble. All wars come at a horrific human cost. No war leaves the warring nation unscarred. The scars are not always visible. The scars are always real. 
Our nation has fought many wars. Freedom has never been free. The day every war begins. Everyone prays for it to end. Soon. The following depiction of lives lost invites reflection and reverence. The Revolutionary War, 25,000 lives lost. The War of 1812, 15,000 American lives lost. The Mexican-American War, 13,000 lives lost. Each life the end of incredible potential. The seven Civil War, 75 BBs, 75, 750,000 lives. The Spanish-American and Philippine War, 6,200 lives. World War One. War to end all wars. 12 BBs. 116,000 American lives lost. World War II, 41 BBs, 405,000 lives, American lives lost. The Korean War, four BBs for 36,500 lives lost. Vietnam tore the nation apart. Six BBs, 58,000 lives lost. The war on terror, two BBs, 
16,000 lives lost. All other wars and deployments of the American military, three BBs, 24,000 lives lost. And as you know, there is another war that has been waged since 1973. It is a war on the most vulnerable, the unborn. Forty-seven years of carnage. Sixty million lives lost. fearfully and wonderfully made everyone we don't celebrate this this Sunday we mourn that we live in such plenty and we live in such freedom and this is what we do with it. And we mourn that for most of the 365 days a year, those of us who know such wonder never think about this. We go to a church that is anti-abortion. We go to a church that wants to be positively pro-life. We, go, we, we do those kinds of things. But, but what are we doing? What are we praying? Where are our hands moving? Where are our legs taking us to do something about this? Because judgment is coming to our nation. If judgment were not coming to our nation, God would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's not going to apologize. So here's, here's a very simple thing that I, I hope you will pray about that you will consider, that you will think about. But we're going to send you a link this week. We're going to try and put it up on our website and on our app. And we're going to send it out in the midweekly. And here's one thing that you could do this week to put feet to what you believe, to put real um, effort into doing something. We're, we're going to put a link to the video that has that war footage. And then the poor, I call it the poor, of the, these, this representation. 
And then there's, at the end, there's, a, there's another piece that, uh, where I come back on and I say, and I invite people, whoever who has experienced an abortion, I say that the church that they're attending is a church that will love them and receive them and help them even if they've gone through an abortion or caused someone else to go through abortion, that there's, it's not the unpardonable sin that we, we want to love you and care for you if you've been touched by abortion in any way. And it promotes uh, Trinity Church up in Watsika, Illinois. We're going to give you that link and, and hope that hundreds of people go to that church because you made it viral. Put it on your Facebook, put it on your Instagram, put it on, you know, send it out by email to your friends and ask them to put it up. But just make it go viral. It's not about our church. It's about this, these lives. It's about ending this. And then begin to think through what are some things that you can do beyond that. Maybe you can work at the Palmetto Women's Center. Men, they need some men to meet with men who are coming in with wives and girlfriends and, and sisters to, 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 the, to the Women's Momentum Center, and they're considering abortion. And the Women's Center is going to help them choose away from that, but there's men and boys that need to be talked to by another man. You can, you can be there. You don't need a lot of expertise. You just need your, your, your time and, and your open Bible. That's it to listen, to care. Nope, they'll give you some training. You could give. You could decide today, you know what, this year I'm going to give more than I've ever given before to crisis pregnancy centers like Palmetto. You could give so that they could care for more. Last year they saved the lives of over 270 babies at the women's, at, at, at Palmetto. It's It's incredible. If every town in America did that, abortion would end. If the people of God rise up and they meditate on the significance of what God has told them about every one of us that he allows to be conceived, who he knit together fearfully and wonderfully in the womb of a mother. Two things that I would like to see before I, I die. One, I'd love to be a part of a genuine revival. A real revival where people are falling on their knees before God and saying that they want to give everything to him. And the second is, I'd love to see the end of this. Because this is the greatest shame that any country has ever had. No, you, you think, we love our country. I, I don't think there's any country in the history of the world that has killed more innocents than this country. Maybe China. Maybe. So we're going to put that link up. You pray about it. And pray for your friends. You're going to hear it and see it and, 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 
and, and be influenced by it. Somebody on the internet took just the poor portion and created a, a separate video. If you just want to show the poor, uh, what I call the poor, then you can do that. There's two different options. There's a three minute and 40 second option and there's a, about an eight minute option. Send it out and pray that God uses it in some extraordinary way to help this end. I want the worship team to come and Joe to come. Uh, Joe's, Joe's going to, after we sing, um, Joe was going to close our, our service in prayer. I'm sorry that this isn't a happy, happy, joy, joy service. But I'm really not. Because the people of God need to learn to lament and mourn and pray and seek the face of God.